James chapter 4 this evening is where we will be studying. James chapter 4, starting in verse 4, we'll be talking about catastrophic compromise as the follow-up to our message from a couple weeks ago from verses 1 through 3, which was entitled Disastrous Desire. Now, you see that word compromise on the screen or maybe in your bulletin, catastrophic compromise. What is compromise? Now, I'm sure you know, but I'll just give us a definition. Compromise occurs when two sides of a disagreement make concessions to reach a perceived good for both sides. Now, this can be and sometimes is a good thing. Maybe you are familiar with our legislative system, the way it's set up uh, nationally with the House of Representatives and the Senate. That is the result of a compromise, a famous compromise known as the Connecticut Compromise. You see back in... Ooh, 17, about 1787, they were drafting the Constitution after the Revolutionary War. They were coming up with the system of how things would work. And the delegates from the different states had met. And the larger states thought that since they were larger, they should have more representation in both the Senate and the House of Representatives. While the smaller states, understandably, thought there should be equal representation in both houses. Well, the delegates from Connecticut came up with an idea known as now the Connecticut Compromise in which the Senate, as you understand, is made up of two delegates from each state, equal representation for every state, and the House of Representatives is made up of delegates that are in each, make up each house, oh man, made up hmm, from the states based on population, all right, so the bigger the state, the more representatives, you understand how that works as a result of the Connecticut Compromise. So sometimes compromise can be good, but sometimes it can also be bad. Now, first a silly example. If I, I'm wearing black shoes tonight, but if I had decided instead that I wanted to wear brown shoes, and my wife said, no, 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 you need to wear black shoes with that, and we came to a compromise in which my left foot was a brown shoe and my right sh was shoe was a black shoe, that would be really embarrassing. And that would be bad. That would be a compromise, but the result would be negative, right? Now, a more spiritual example. Spiritual com compromise is a negative thing as to a Christian's spiritual life. Jesus taught that there can be no spiritual compromise in the life of one of his followers. Remember his teaching? For example, uh, he said, somebody asked him, what is the greatest command? And he said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. There's no room for a part of loving something else. It's all in or nothing. There's no room for compromise. He also taught that his followers could only serve one master. When talking about wealth, he said, you can serve wealth or you can serve God, but you cannot serve both. There's no room for compromise spiritually. When talking about what it would take to follow him, he said you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Denying yourself leaves no room for your self-desires to influence. There's no room for spiritual compromise in a believer's life. In fact, when we compromise in our spiritual life, that leads to weakness in our relationship with God in our, and in our relationships with others. 
including the conflicts that James started addressing in chapter 4 and verse 1 when he said, from whence come wars and fightings among you? He said they come from you, from your lust, your sinful desires. And here we also say they see in verse 4 through 6 that they come from our compromise spiritually. Conflicts in our relationships can be traced back to compromise in our walk with God. Remember, James is talking to first century Christians, first generation Christians. They, they have not been Christians before them. You know, they, they're the first ones. What does it look like to be a Christian? What does it mean to live a life of genuine faith with Christ or faith in Christ? James tells them that gen, in this passage that genuine faith in Christ produces a rightly ordered relationship with God. Genuine faith in Christ produces a rightly ordered relationship with God. And as we think about our relationship with God that's founded on faith in Jesus Christ, James is going to highlight two primary concerns that we should concern ourselves with in that relationship with God to have one with him that is rightly ordered, where he is first and other things come later. We'll look at those two concerns as we study James chapter 4, verses Four through six. I'll read that now, and then we'll open up with a word of prayer. Starting in verse 4, James says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you think that the Scripture saith in vain, The Spirit that dwells in us lusteth to envy? But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we prepare our hearts to continue studying this passage. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for James penning this letter to the believers that he wrote to back in the first century. And I thank you that it is still living, it's still speaking today into our hearts, into our lives, and our situation. Father, just as those believers were trying to understand what it was to live by faith in Christ, we too need to understand. Just because it's thousands of years later and we have history and a completed canon of Scripture doesn't mean it's easy for us. I pray that your Spirit would illumine our hearts, that we would understand what needs to change in our lives, that we would not just be hearers of that, but also we would be committed to do it. Father, strengthen our hearts. Give us courage to be obedient to you. Help us this hour to be open to what you have for us through your word and change us through it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Genuine faith produces a rightly ordered relationship with God. And one of the first primary concerns you should have in your walk with God is to prioritize God over the world. That should be a primary concern. Remember, James says in verse 4, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. James comes out pretty hard-hitting right here. You know, throughout the verse, he's been saying, Brothers and sisters, my brethren, and, and kind of being comforting, coming along, where now it's almost like he takes a baseball bat and just hits them. You know, you adulteresses. Now what he's, the, the adulterers and adulteresses here is kind of a way to fix it, make it a little maybe easier. Really the word is just adulteresses. 
Uh, it's kind of clarifying here in the King James, trying to say it's not just the specific group of ladies James is talking to. He's speaking to all believers in the church. And he's using the language of the prophets in the Old Testament when speaking to the nation of Israel. And they would say, they would call upon Israel and say, you are a harlot or you are being unfaithful to God by your idolatry. And James is echoing that language here. He calls us. He calls those readers in the first century. And by extension, he is calling us adulteresses to label his readers as the unfaithful people of God. And why does he call them this? Well, it's probably to grab their attention. Hey, this is a big deal. Why are you an adulteress, you church of God? It's because of your friendship with the world. He says, almost as a rhetorical question, do you not know? Do you fail to understand that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Now, we might not think of it as a big deal, but friendship in our culture and generation is kind of not as serious as it would have been to those original readers who heard this. You know, we think of friends and we have Facebook friends. How many Facebook friends do you have? Oh, I've got 700. How many of them have you seen in your life? Half of them, you know. We, we don't understand. Friendship is a lot more casual. You know, if I'm friendly to a person and I know a couple details, I might call them my friend. But friendship in the first century was deeply personal. Um, it was, as one writer said, friendship was to share all things in a unity that was both spiritual and physical. You think of David and Jonathan back in the Old Testament, where David and Jonathan were good friends. And so good of friends that Jonathan helped him escape the king, Jonathan's father. And he helped Jonathan, uh, David in, in his endeavors to not be killed by Saul. And David uh, saved Jonathan's son after Saul was killed and Jonathan was killed and people were running through the land just trying to get rid of all of the offspring. John, David was able to save the one son and house him and feed him and treat him well for the rest of his life. This friendship went beyond just a casual, hey, I see you on the internet, or I, you know, I know the names of your parents. It was a deep, personal friendship. And so friendship with the world here, the world refers to the, the world system. You understand that the world right now is under the, the uh, supervision, if you will, of Satan, where Paul calls him the god of this age, the prince of the power of the air. Some people would say that, would think erroneously that Satan is the, the, the god of, the, of hell, of the underworld, if it will, as some people might say. But he's not. He's the god of this world, this present age. The world system is influenced by Satan himself. And so friendship with the world, friendship with Satan is enmity, hostility towards God. But let's take a moment before we talk about enmity and talk about what does it look like to have friendship with the world. Well, what do you do with friends? You invite them into your home. You have your kids play with their kids. You spend your time with them. You maybe buy them things. You buy things from them. You learn from them. You let them influence you. You hope to influence them. You want to please them. This is what we do with friends. But friendship with the world, inviting it into your home, letting the, the influence of the world in through maybe the TV or the radio, 
through the newspapers, through the news, um, welcoming with open arms without question the things that we hear there. Friendship with the world is spending your time with it, investing in the things of the world, hoping to get gains back from the world, um, spending your money on it, consuming a large diet of what it has to offer. This is friendship with the world. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Now that word enmity is a state of hostility. It's an active opposition of two, between two parties. If you think back, I'm using a lot of historical illustrations today, but if you think back to the Cold War, it was a long time ago for me at least, but you think about the USSR and the USA during that time, the tensions were palatable with anybody waiting for one incident to set off the Cold War into a hot war. There was definite enmity as there was the race for space and the race for building nuclear weapons. And the Cold War, the tension, the enmity between USSR and the USA built. That is what God says you are with God when you allow friendship with the world to take priority in your life. The logical conclusion then that James leads us to, he says, Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. The logical conclusion then is that you cannot be a friend of the world and of God. Now, this is what Pastor Dave reminded us of this morning when he was talking about communion. He said, you cannot be one with the world and one with Christ. Likewise, we cannot be a friend of God if we are going to pursue intimate, close friendship with the world system. Friendship with the world system aligns you as the enemy of God. And no wonder, thinking, now let's put this in context. Remember James chapter 4, verse 1, where do wars and fightings come from among you? It comes from your evil desires, and it comes from when you compromise with the world. Doesn't that make sense? No wonder there are conflicts in the body of Christ when parts of the body are aligning themselves with the enemy of God. There's going to be conflict. So we need to prioritize God over the world because friendship with the world is hostility to God. You see that in verse 4. But we also see that God desires our complete loyalty in verse 5. James says, Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? Now usually when someone says, as the scripture says, they're referring to a, a, an Old Testament reference here. Um, James is the first book being written in the New Testament, so he's not referring to a New Testament scripture likely. He's referring to the Old Testament. The reference here isn't very specific, so it's probably referring to a, a prevalent theme in the Old Testament. That God is jealous for the love of his people. He says, do you think the scripture saith in vain... The spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy. That word spirit in the King James is a lowercase. But if you have another translation with you tonight, you might see it in, as a capital S. And that's likely more what James is saying. The spirit is the Holy Spirit. You might understand that phrase this way. Does the scripture saith in vain that he jealously desires the capital S spirit which he has made to dwell in us? 
A Christian who fosters and builds a friendship with the world usually feels miserable. That's the Holy Spirit inside you. The Spirit that God made to dwell in you after salvation or at the moment of salvation. Our friendship with the world grieves the Holy Spirit. He is letting us know that God is jealous for your loyalty and love in a righteous way. Remember what Paul says? He says in 1 Corinthians, he says, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, have from God, and ye are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We prioritize God over the world because we belong to him. Because he purchased us with the blood of Jesus Christ in our salvation. And he desires our complete loyalty. He gave us the spirit to remind us when we are pursuing the things of the world that that's not the way he meant it. We're not the world's, we're God's. Maybe you know Christians. Maybe you are the Christian who has been headlong pursuing after the things of the world and it's not bringing the satisfaction i wish i didn't know christians like that but i do sometimes i've been that person in my life pursuing the things of the world and the holy spirit not letting me enjoy it because he jealously desires our loyalty we need to prioritize god over the world now it's not always easy to, to see the connection between my loyalty to God and my conflicts. But my loyalty to God tells me whose side I'm on. And if I'm trying to pursue the world's desires in the midst of a group of people, a body of Christ who's pursuing God's desires, those are going to be at odds. There's going to be conflict. To prioritize God over the world means that honoring God comes first in my life. My priority is to honor God. We are in, that means we are to be in the world as salt and light, but not of the world. We are to be friendly to those in the world, but not to become friends of the world system. Let's think about three areas of our lives. First of all, since we're talking about friends, thinking about our friends. Friends are influential over us. We want to please our friends. So who are your friends? You, are you developing close, personal, influential friendships with other believers who are drawing you closer to God, who are pushing you further in your spiritual walk? Or are you developing friendships that are influential in your life, that you're trying to please, that are drawing you away from him? Now, we ought to be friendly to all people. I'm not saying cut off all ties with anyone who doesn't say they're a Christian. But let's be very careful about developing friendships maybe you as a parent told that to your kids because you understand that who you hang out with helps shape who you are who you spend personal intimate time with shapes your your affections and what you love our friendship with god prioritizing friendship with god means that we choose human friends that push us to a closer relationship with him we need to be developing those friendships, working on them. Next, our finances. 
What does your accounting of where you spend your money tell you about your friendship with God and the world? Friendship with God means that our financial investments are investments for eternity, that we prioritize eternal investments, not exclusively for retirement and pleasure and other things. Now, I'm not saying be unwise with the stewardship that God has given you of your resources, but where, if God were to evaluate your finances and look at where you spend your money, are you investing heavily in things that will perish and pass away when you die? Or are you investing in things that will last for eternity? Friendship with God means we invest in those things that which will last. And then finally, our future. The future. When you think about the future, what stirs inside you? Is it fear? Fear of what the government might do? Fear of what happens financially to me? Fear of where my next meal is coming from? Fear of other people that seek to wrong me? That's not necessarily bad, but if it ends there, you might have a problem. Friendship with God means that you might have those fears when you think about the future, but you give them to the Lord. That your confidence in the future is not in what man might do in the government or in your personal relationships, but when you think about the future, you have confidence that the Lord will make all things right and that you live based on that trust. Friendship with God is a mutually exclusive friendship. It doesn't, God does not take kindly to competition in that way. He is righteously jealous of our love. Remember the context in James chapter 4. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Here James says the answer is your friendship with the world produces conflict in the church. To extend friendship to the world, the hand of friendship, is an act of betrayal to our Savior which puts us at odds with him and therefore his people. We try to convince ourselves many times. And you know, a little bit of friendship with the world is okay. You know, I, I'll just have this area of my life, this area of what I watch or what I read or how I spend my time or what I think about, that's just yeah, it's more aligned with the world, but that's okay. It's just like we're Facebook friends. But it's worse than that. It's deeper than that. God says that it's open hostility with him. In your life, who has higher priority? God, the one who sent his son to die on the cross, to pay the price for your sins by shedding his blood, to purchase you with that blood? The, one, the God who made you? Or is your loyalty, is your priority to a friendship with the world actively opposed to God? That's heavy stuff. Thankfully, we have verse 6. Let's read that. Verse 6, But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. That brings us to our second primary concern is you have your relationship with God and you're making sure it's ordered properly, that you are walking with the Lord in the way you should. The second primary concern is to prioritize humility over pride. We do this, first of all, because grace is God's great gift. We see this at the first part of verse 6, but he giveth 
more grace. That word giveth is an ongoing action, something he's constantly doing. God is always extending grace, but it's not just grace. There's a little modifier in front of it. What is that? More grace. The word is the word where we get mega from. It's the idea of great. More here is a reference to the greater grace of God in both quality and supply to what the world gives. Now, despite the trappings, despite the allure, despite the power that the world wields, God's grace is superior. When it comes to our sin, even in this area of trying to be loyal to God, but being pulled by our evil desires away and, and, and at war within ourselves, God does not look upon our sin and give what is earned, which is destruction and death. He gives what he chooses, and that is grace, that is forgiveness. It's extremely difficult to maintain loyalty to God, but God will give the grace that we need to live in right relationship with him. By his grace, God equips and God enables us to do what he asks. We need to prioritize humility over pride because of God's great gift of grace. But we also need to prioritize humility over pride because God honors humility. We see in the last part of James chapter 4, verse 6, he says, Wherefore he saith, again, this is a quotation from the Old Testament. Here it's a direct quote from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud but giveth grace unto the humble. To resist the proud means that God is opposed to them. What a terrifying place to be. What a horrible place to be in opposition to the God of the universe. And this is what you would expect. You would expect no less for, but God to resist somebody who is directly opposed to him who is aligning themselves with his enemies. So what characterizes the proud? God resists the proud. What is a proud person? What does a proud person look like or act like? Well, somebody who is proud is somebody who thinks of themselves first. It's a me-first attitude. They live on an island. An island. Where I always get what I want first. There are those who believe that they deserve good from God. God owes me. That's pride. It's those who refuse to rely on others or rely on God to accomplish anything from salvation, of which we need to rely on God, or anything else where I will not ask anyone for help because I will do it. Those who desire proud, the proud is someone who desires to be first who does good things for the purpose of people seeing how well they do it and giving them glory. Ultimately, the proud is somebody who seeks the ultimate glory in their life for number one, for me. That is the proud, and for that person, God resists them. He opposes them, their plans, their desires, their efforts to please him. But he gives grace, he gives his unmerited favor, his forgiveness, his help, and his power, his strength and mercy. 
To who? To the humble. Now, the humble is the opposite of the proud. Somebody who places their desires last, who seeks the good of others, who realizes that their talents, their gifts, their abilities are from God. The humble is someone who puts their worth in God and what God says and not in their own abilities or perceived strength. The humble is someone who admits that they could never live up to God's holiness. Someone who understands that they cannot reach the perfection God requires on their own and they need help from God himself. The humble is someone who sees how much they need God and asks him for help. Someone who worships him out of a love for him and not out of a desire to manipulate God into being my personal genie. Ultimately, what James is doing here is he's calling us to submit to God. James is calling us to, in humility, submit to God. As one writer says, if, one, if a person remains proud and continues to seek the world, God's jealousy, God's resistance will surely fall. But all is not lost. There is still an even greater graciousness to God if one will simply humble himself and admit it's not about me. I can't do it on my own. Lord, please help me. If they humble themselves, God will extend his grace and mercy. We need to prioritize humility over pride. It's easy to see how my pride, if we say, again, sorry, zooming out into our context here, where do wars and fightings from among you, where do these conflicts come from? Pretty easy to take a moment and examine how my pride can cause conflict and how it places me in direct opposition to God. But as we continue thinking what it means to be humble and what that looks like, okay, yeah, I need to be humble, but what does that look like in my life? Let's look at a couple other passages of Scripture. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 3, the Apostle Paul gives us a good picture of what humility looks like. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, that's pride, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Humility is hard for us as sinful, fallen people living in this world. But God himself, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, humbled himself to be made in the likeness of man, a creature that he created. And didn't just descend to the, the level of human, but the level of servant and even death of a criminal on the cross. That is the picture of humility. That is what we should strive to be like. Matthew chapter 23, verse 10, 11 and 12 is another example, this time from Jesus' teaching of what humility looks like. 
Matthew chapter 23 and verse 10 says, Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased. And he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. Humility, prioritizing humility is to put others first. To act like Jesus in his humiliation of coming to earth. To put ourselves last. To be humble and lowly of spirit. Not high and mighty in spirit, but meek. Humble in spirit, lowly in spirit as we approach the Lord, as we serve others. Genuine faith in Christ produces a rightly ordered relationship with God. Conflicts in our relationships can be traced back to compromise in our walk with God. So let me ask you, James puts, James put these verses, wrote, penned these words in the context of conflict among people do you have conflict maybe if i ask you what are some conflicts you have maybe there's a specific person that comes to mind maybe it's a lot of people where have you looked for answers in these conflicts maybe i mean we talked a couple weeks ago about looking at your desires, making sure your desires are aligned properly, that you're not desiring sinful things and that the good things you're desiring are properly ordered under the primary desire of glorifying God and honoring Him. But today we looked about a relationship with God. Are you taking care to maintain that? Continue walking with the Lord in the midst of conflict. Prioritize your loyalty to him over your pursuit of the world's friendships. Are you taking care to humble yourself before the Lord? To put your needs and desires last while the needs and desires of others first. To refuse relying on your own abilities. To rely on the strength that God gives through his grace. There is real hope for change. There is real hope for victory in conflict when we stop playing the blame game. When we humble ourselves before the Lord. When we acknowledge our sinful lusts, our divided loyalties, and our proud self-reliance. There is hope in our conflicts when we start prioritizing a genuine, faithful walk with God as our primary purpose. Now you're probably sitting here and saying, wow, that was pretty obvious pastor chris thanks that's so needed in our lives so often we we begin we get in the midst of that conflict and we say what is wrong with this person what is wrong with this situation without taking the time to humble ourselves and evaluate how my divided loyalties with god might be impacting it it might not be them in fact there's no hope in me pointing at them The hope I find is when I look within and I see my sinfulness, and instead of rising against it and saying, I will be stronger than my sin, I lower myself, even to my knees, before the Lord and say, Lord, I cannot. I need your help. Would you please help with this? 
would you please extend your grace? Forgive me for where I've been wrong. Strengthen me to do what is right. And you know what that does? He giveth more grace to those people. Let us be humble in our conflict. Let us be humble in our walk with God and prioritize God over the world, prioritize humility over pride, and let us find hope in our conflicts as we walk with him in the way that pleases him. Let's pray this evening in closing. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of James once again. I am thankful in myself how James is simple but pointed. How he tells us things that maybe we've heard a lot, but are foundational to our walk with you. And I pray that you would help us as believers who've maybe been saved for a few days, a few weeks, a few years, a few decades, to not easily brush off the message of James, but that we in our conflicts, we in our daily lives would seek to humble ourselves before you. Help us to be a people characterized by humble submission to your will, by following Christ as he set the example, denying ourselves and taking up our cross. Thank you for his example of humility. I pray that your grace would sustain us and that your grace would be made known clearly to us as we seek to do these things that you have challenged us to do. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.